0: Instead of thinking, okay, what's the perfect argument that I could pull out to convince that kid that they're not trans? Where's the kid at? Afra's like, okay, fine, you won the debate, but you haven't won me. It's almost like you're flattening all these things. Depression, you know, body dysmorphia, uh, anxiety, OCD, autism, all these family dynamic issues. And you're just flattening all these layers and giving us a diagnosis trans. Yeah, as long as you just leave them alone. Wow. About 90% of them will naturally come to identify with their biological sex.
1: Jason Everett, thank you so much for sitting down. We just finished an interview over at the live action Mm -hmm. space and talked about hookup culture and abortion and Mm -hmm. pornography and all of these things. We're going to get into some of that today. You've written 17 books and you are an amazing speaker and thinker for the pro love movement. I'm going to call it founder of chastity project, husband of Crystalina, beautiful person. I admire eight kids give us a little bit of a run through for people who haven't heard of you. Yeah. Who is Jason Everett? I know I just gave, gave you yeah. some, <laughs> some of that, but who is Jason Everett and why did you found Chastity Project?
0: Yeah, well, for the past 25 years, I've been blessed to travel around the world, speaking at high schools, universities on six different continents uh, to bring just the good news of God's plan for human sexuality uh, to young people. So we'll do the Catholic schools, we'll do public schools, I've done like correctional facility stuff. And we've spoken to Harvard, Princeton, Air Force, Naval Academies and So it's just been a blessing to share the good news that we're not in there just giving some like shame, guilt, mongering approach of statistics to scare kids into abstinence. It just isn't the approach. We uh, take the thought of St. John Paul II, and especially in his book, Love and Responsibility, um, of really just uh, what he said, reintroducing love into love, meaning the commandment of love into relationships of love. What does that look like? What would that do to our human sexuality if we just kind of had a redeemed understanding of our sexuality and love? And so try to bring that into the, the schools the churches with books, resources, podcasts, um, all kinds of stuff for the past 25 years. So I've been doing it. I did it for five years solo and then met my wife, Crystalina, and then we've been tag teaming it ever since.
1: And she's amazing, Crystalina. She wrote, I think you co-wrote it, Mm -hmm. How to Find Your Soulmate Without without Losing losing Your Soul, soul, which I read when I was probably 24, 25. A friend gave it to me because I think they didn't approve of my boyfriend at the time. (laughs) No, he did not end up becoming my husband. I'm very happily married to my amazing husband now. Uh, And it was a, an amazing book. It was yeah. very much a preparation for how to think about discernment in dating, mm-hmm. how to date well, how to prepare for marriage. I'm going to give you a really tough question okay. um, to start us off here. Yeah. Um, out of your 17 books, including mm-hmm. the one that I just <laughs> noted that yeah. I've read and I love, what do you think are the top three most important?
0: Um, I would say the how to find your soulmate without losing your soul book Okay, for, good, for, I got for that young one women. Right that one. <laughs> um, second one is a biography I did of St. John Paul, II, um, called uh St. John Paul, II: the St. John Paul, the great, his five loves. So that was my favorite book to, to write. It's a compilation of stories of the Holy father that weren't published before, until after he passed away, different miracles. He performed all his different assassination attempts against him. People think it was just the one time he was shot, but there was so much more. I mean, he was even stabbed by a priest in Fatima one. So it's got all that stuff. So for a spiritual read I would recommend that one um, and then it's a toss up for the last two I would say the male equivalent of the girl book we wrote is called The Dating Blueprint and that actually teaches guys how to date that really goes through not just the thou shalt nots but that actually teaches them dating etiquette and so we surveyed tons of women asking their feedback what do you wish guys knew because girls have these expectations of what they want us to know but they won't don't want to tell us what they want because they want it to come from us and not from them but then we don't know what it is and so To kind of work around that, we surveyed them and used their information in it. And so that one, it would be a tie up with the newest one we did on the topic of gender. Okay. Um, So we got
1: this one.
0: Yeah. So male, female, other Catholic guide to understanding gender. And that's mm-hmm. just because I've met so many young people wrestling with gender dysphoria. Their parents are like, oh, my daughter's 14. And she says she's non-binary and she wants to get a double mastectomy. And like, what do I do? She wants us to use her pronouns. And so just spent years researching that. It's got more than a thousand um, references in the endnote section to back up the church's teachings on this, but really presents it with a lot of charity as well as clarity.
1: Okay, so you picked just the books that I would have hoped because this was not planned, by the way, because I wanted to talk about your work on gender ideology and the practical approach of helping people understand what's Mm -hmm. happening with gender ideology, transgenderism, how we respond. And then I want to take some time. We've got just an hour here, but take some time to talk about the practicals of dating and relationships because we talk about that a lot. Masculinity, femininity, red Mm -hmm. pill stuff. We talk about that a lot on the podcast. So let's start with the gender ideology stuff. You just wrote this book, male, female, other, I recommend everybody gets it. Uh, You've already given some great interviews on this. Our friend, Matt Mm Frad over at Pines with Aquinas did a great one. Can you give us an overview? View of what you teach in this book. What do people need to know yeah. about the dramatic rise of transgenderism today?
0: Yeah, well, a couple decades ago, um gender dysphoria was something that typically affected a very small percentage of young boys and middle-aged men. With the rise of social media, typically around the time Instagram came into being, ever since then, we've seen this meteoric ascent of uh, not only people identifying as trans and saying they have gender dysphoria, but a complete inversion of the sex ratio, where now we have coming to the gender clinic a decade and a half ago, a couple patients a year, to now thousands upon thousands with an 18-month waiting list. You go on GoFundMe.com right now and You will find 40,000 girls right now raising money to have double mastectomies. 40,000 of them, because these are $10,000 procedures. And where's a girl going to get the money? Crowdfunding. And people aren't dropping five, 10 bucks. People are dropping $5,000 here. Go be your authentic self. And so you've got young kids on puberty blockers. And then when they go from puberty blockers to cross sex hormones, it sterilizes them for the rest of their life. And so you start just doing the math on that. I mean, imagine if you had a thousand boys a year sterilized, and which is obviously an extremely low number. That's the reality is far higher than that. Just take a thousand. Okay. Let's say it was a thousand a year for 30 years. Okay. The average man produces two kids in his lifetime. So within one generation, we've now wiped out 60,000 people. Within two generations, you're looking at 120. Next generation, we're out to you know 240 480 basically within the fifth generation you'll have wiped out a million people that will not exist because of just sterilizing only a thousand boys per year now you multiply that globally of what's going on um not just the surgical sterilizations but the hormonal ones I mean, it's unbelievable. And so I'm I'm meeting these kids, these young family members and girls, not simply identifying as trans and saying I am identify as a boy, but many of them landing somewhere in between this land of kind of like non-binary. And it's not that they wanna be a guy, they just know they don't wanna be a girl. That I just, uh, Abigail Schreier said, she feels like they're fleeing womanhood like a house on fire without any particular destination in mind. And so the purpose behind this book is to address the top 18 claims being made by gender theory. Because you've got college students sitting in a university class, and the teacher's like, well, you know, sex is not binary, sex is a spectrum, and it's because of Western colonialism. And you know, the poor college kid's like, I don't know how to fire back on this stuff. And so we wanted to give them what they needed to adequately refute some of these things, but then also offer pastoral strategies of, okay, my daughter wants a binder, what do I do? You know, my son wants to transition this, what do we do? kind of providing pastoral strategies. And then even for the person who's wrestling with gender dysphoria, okay, what's God's plan for me? Like, am I just a walking abomination to God because I don't feel at home in my own body? What's his plan for me? And so we try to tackle all that stuff in, in a very loving but truthful way in the book.
1: So I want to get into some of that, but first, why, how did we get to this place where, like you said, there's this dramatic rise in people who experience gender dysphoria and people who think they are transgender or they want to try to change their sex or they, they, you know, have different beliefs about themselves. I'm non-binary or I, you know, even the increase in um, people who identify as LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. I think there was a survey done recently by George Barna. I don't want to get this wrong, but it was a fourth to a third of evangelical young people, millennials and Gen Zers who believe them to identify as so they're not necessarily practicing the behaviors of, but identifying as LGBT. Yeah. You know, a couple of decades ago it was like one percent. Yeah. How did how do you think we got here?
0: The one of the analogies I gave in the book is like, imagine you had a a big swollen river. It's like, okay, how did it it become so swollen? Well, maybe there's a dam broken upstream. Maybe the the ice caps on the mountains are melted. You know, maybe there's an underwater stream that burst forth. Maybe there's been torrential rainfalls. Maybe all these streams are leading into it. And so if we're looking at the origins of this meteoric ascent of transgender identifying young people, there's a lot that can be looked at. I, I think one of the themes that I've seen a lot in my conversations with the young people or they're coming out of this place of overly rigid gender stereotypes that if you're a real woman, you got to fit in that box. And if you don't fit in that box, then maybe you're not a woman. And and for the boys, if you're a real man, you're into drinking beer and shooting deer and watching NASCAR. And if you're into these other things, well, then maybe the problem is that, you know, your sex doesn't align with your gender identity and you're actually trans. There's also the, the factor of mental health issues. Uh, in particular, depression, autism. There's one study done in Europe that found that 42% of people who identify as trans meet the criterion for an autism diagnosis, 42%. This is staggering when you consider that 1% of the general population has autism, but 42% of people identify as trans meet this criterion. What's going on there? And, and I'm, I've got in my inbox right now an email from a guy wrestling with all this stuff. And he identifies as Jessica and dresses as a woman. And he and I are having a very pleasant back and forth conversation. He's talked, he said, yeah, I am autistic and I've looked into the link and, and I'm gonna send him an email on the plane ride home of just like, what have you found there? What are, what are some connections there? Uh, This is why I know an anesthesiologist who's told the doctors in this hospital that I won't perform anesthesia for any patient who wants that. Because he said, look, I've seen the medical charts, the comorbidities of autism, depression, uh, trauma, all of these things. And to think that that's all gonna go away you know, by cutting this body part off and identifying as that, he said, you're contributing with the mental illness instead of actually treating it. It's malpractice and I'll have no part of it. Mm,
1: That takes courage. You Mm. mentioned, uh, gender stereotypes, you believe have a role to play in Mm -hmm. people feeling that they don't identify with this sort of cultural expression of womanhood and you know i think about like the kardashian empire of like being a woman is inflated breasts and butt and you not for the purposes of reproduction you know but for the purposes of sexual gratification Mm -hmm. of a male you know and to be looked at so i do think that's definitely a Mm -hmm. phenomenon today but i would say you know 100 years ago there certainly were gender stereotypes you know in some ways you could argue as aggressive as today's Mm -hmm. in a different way, maybe a more modest or formal way. But, you know, women largely wore dresses. If you Mm -hmm. were a woman, you wore a dress. If you were a man, you typically didn't. Um, So, you know, also gender stereotypes are at the same time that they're being emphasized, they're also being broken today. What do you say to that? You know, how do you think that, you know, I just see kind of a lot of confusion about what does it even mean to be a woman? What does Mm -hmm. it mean mean to be a man? But what's your kind of take on how that's influencing the the phenomenon,
0: the problem. I just think of one teenage girl who wrote to me a few weeks ago on the whole subject of her dysphoria. And she said, I just wished I lived 30 years ago because she said, I wouldn't have a phone I wouldn't have a screen that I'm up at night scrolling through these reels of these women's perfect hair and perfect bikini summer body and perfect boyfriend and perfect this and perfect that because I just go to bed every night just feeling less than everyone else. But before the screens, this wouldn't even been an issue. I just would have been hanging out with my friends at the farm and those would be all the only people I know. And if I'm a little more tomboyish and I like to climb trees and throw rocks, well then so be it. There's room for me in this world. But nowadays, like the category tomboy doesn't even exist anymore. There's no space for that. And I I think of a nun that I had lunch with, Sister Deidre. and she—this is a woman—is a consecrated religious sister. So she's a nun. She's a doctor. She's a surgeon, and she's a colonel in the United States Army. <laughs> and I'm like, wow! Like, did just did you not want to be an astronaut because you're lazy? Like, what? But it's like she wasn't doing these things instead of motherhood. She was mothering through these things. And so I think what we need to do is kind of expand our understanding of womanhood instead of thinking that if you don't fit the box, that you're just not one. And so I remember reading one woman, not a Christian. feminist, she said that a woman is a person with a female body and any personality, not a person with a female personality and any body.
1: So for folks listening who are dealing with this, whether it's a family member they know who are facing gender dysphoria or, you know, they're talking to friends about it and they're like, what's the big deal? Why you're such a transphobe? You you get labeled that if you're Mm -hmm. opposed transgenderism today. Um, Not that you oppose the person and you want the person to in any way, be harmed. In fact, yeah. we want the person to be healthy. We, we, I think the, 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 side, the, the side that's typically concerned about transgenderism today is very empathetic and mm-hmm. compassionate. What would be, you mentioned there's a whole litany of them in your book, yeah. some of the top arguments that the pro trans, especially of children Side takes and how do we combat them? How do we
0: respond to them? One of the common arguments is that, well, like if you don't support this young person in transitioning, well, then they're just going to commit suicide. And so if you are not an ally of our community, you're a transphobic, hateful bigot, and their blood is on your hands. And now this is this suicide narrative is an extremely powerful one because it's like, well, no, I I don't wanna do that. I don't wanna be some hateful bigot and contribute to someone taking their own life. Well, yeah, yeah, so if if you wanna be you, then yeah, I'll I'll call you your pronoun and I'll support you in your transitioning because I don't want you to commit suicide. But what they don't often realize is that after they go through the transitioning, the biggest study that's ever been done on this came out of Sweden. So very, very progressive culture. And they found within about eight to 10 years after the surgery, their suicide rate climbed to 19 times higher than the general population. Wow. If you isolate out the female to male transitioners, suicide rate more than 40 times higher than the general population. But if you're just doing a short-term study of just like, hey, one year after the surgery, they don't regret it. Let's follow them a little bit longer down the road because the longer the study and the more people included in it, the more worrisome the results are. This is why, right now, all the Scandinavian countries. doing an about face on this. They're doing a massive U-turn. Sweden, you look at Finland, Norway, go over to Amsterdam. They're all backing off on their policies now. Even the United Kingdom just this last spring shut down the biggest gender clinic in the United Kingdom. It's because of a young woman, Kiara Bell. She went through the puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, had a double mastectomy. Then in her early 20s, basically looked at her body and thought, what did I do to myself? And then she looked up, what did you adults let me do to myself? And she sued the Tavistock Gender Clinic It went all the way up to the high court in England and these progressive liberal judges ruled in her favor. And now this gender clinic has been shut down. And even before it was shut down, 35 of their psychologists quit because they said we're not being allowed to investigate the deeper roots of this issue. It's almost like you're flattening all these things of potential depression, you know, body dysmorphia, uh, anxiety, OCD, autism all these family dynamic issues and you're just flattening all these layers and giving us a diagnosis trans and therefore the solution is transitioning and these psychologists quit in fact one of them before he quit was interesting what he did is he was taking care of a patient group of people who had transitioned who were having mental health challenges and he had another group that wanted to transition and he thought well what if what if we bring these two groups together and just let them have some time together and share their stories? Very curious thing happened when he joined those who wanted to transition with those who had 98% of the young people that wanted to transition desisted and said, I don't think I need to do this anymore. 98% just by having the opportunity to see somebody who had gone through it and realized this did not take away my problems. It just created new ones.
1: So I'm so excited to share that we have our first sponsor of this podcast. Sponsors are amazing. It means we can keep the podcast running. And it also means I get to share with you new companies that I think are awesome and doing amazing things. And our first sponsor is Seven Weeks Coffee. Seven Weeks Coffee is a brand that I found out about before they even sponsored me, and I love their coffee. Seven Weeks Coffee is named after the baby at seven weeks. Why? Because at seven weeks, the baby is about the size of a coffee bean. Very cool, huh? And at seven weeks typically is when you can first hear the heartbeat of the baby and create that amazing connection with, the, with your baby and the humanity of your baby. So seven weeks coffee is a pro-life coffee brand with top-notch coffee. It's a beautiful brand. It's a beautiful roast. I love drinking it in the morning. I've been really enjoying it. And I hope you can enjoy it with me while you listen to this podcast. And as you're drinking your morning coffee, you know that by drinking that cup of coffee, you are supporting the pro-life movement, 10% of the sales, so not the profit, but the sales of Seven Weeks Coffee goes to pregnancy resource centers. So every time you buy this coffee, you are supporting the Pregnancy Resource Center movement, which is on the front lines, saving lives, serving mothers, serving families. Go to sevenweekscoffee.com. That's the number seven spelled out S-E-V-E-N weekscoffee.com, sevenweekscoffee.com. You can order your first coffee order using the code LILA. Get 10% off your order and you can get your amazing coffee delivered right to your door and in the process be supporting the life-saving work of pregnancy resource centers. Check out this company. They are new. They are growing. They've already donated over $100,000 to pregnancy resource centers. And I think you're going to love the coffee. Sevenweekscoffee.com. Go check it out. Give them some love. The Chloe, Chloe Cole, we had her on the podcast and very similar to the story you told about the girl in in the UK. She Mm -hmm. had the double mastectomy. And now she's also suing yeah. those that did it to her. She was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's insane what's happening. Um, what about the argument that, from the kind of pro-transgender side um, that says, well, some brains are more female or yeah. more male. And you might be in a male physical body, but your brain is more female, so you can't help it. You're born that way, so we should help try to match your body to your brain.
0: Yeah, well, if you look at the neuroscience behind this, there's a very, very small study that came out and said, hey, look, if you look at this certain cell structure in a very microscopic part of the brain, that that could determine a person's gender identity. Now, what's interesting, it's actually located in a part of brain that's not associated with how you process your identity. And so it's totally out of place for where that would normally be found if it had to do with your identity. They followed it up with another. Study and that study actually found no, the, the, the cell structure there actually resembles your biological sex, not who you think you are. And Another study came out and it was inconclusive. And so, when you look at all the research together, it's small studies with inconclusive results. But if you can find anything that seems to offer some biological support of this, it's like, well, hey, look, it, it gets all the headlines. But to me, it's like, well, wait, wait a minute. Are we now looking to the body to reveal our identities? Like, wait a minute, I thought that that was the opposite of what the transgender belief is, that you can't look at the body to reveal the truth of your identity. And so the neuroscience on this is inconclusive at best. And so if anyone is trying to persuade you otherwise, we have a whole chapter in our book specifically dedicated to this intersex brain question, because like you're looking at a part of the brain smaller than a grain of sand. Let's zoom out a little bit at the human body. I mean, every single cell of the human body that has a nucleus is sexed, male or female, one hair pluck out of your head. Give it to a forensic scientist, male or female. Your bone structure, male or female. They found more than 6,500 sex-specific genes, meaning like Lila, your esophagus is male or female. Your arteries are male or female. Your spleen is male or female. And even in the brain, I love the research of that stuff because like between the two hemispheres of your brain, the corpus callosum, women have millions of more connective fibers between the two hemispheres of the brain, which gives you an exceptional capacity for realizing an experience, processing it with a memory, verbalizing it and feeling this feeling like you can multitask all these things. Whereas you look at a man's brain, we don't have quite the same connections. That's why when a man speaks, you're actually only using the left side of the male brain to speak. The woman uses both. That's why if you hit a, a man hard enough on the left side of his head, he could go completely mute. But if you hit a woman there, she'll just keep right on talking. And so our, our brains are different. The hearing, women can hear sounds that are imperceptible to the male brain. Women's eyes can see hues of color differences that men cannot perceive. I mean, you you really start to like look at the, the vast body of neurological data that shows that we are a sexually dimorphic species. The last place you would wanna go run for evidence that that's not true is the brain. There are literally books of more than 700 pages long that look at nothing but the neurological differences between the male and female brain. And so it is pure junk science to think that there's such thing as a trans brain.
1: Mm. And it's amazing and beautiful to look at what the brain is and -hmm. and the differences between the feminine and the masculine, biologically speaking. Yeah. Because like you said earlier, you can be a woman in a lot of different ways. There's not one way to be a woman. There's mm-hmm. not one way to be a man. Yeah. And our, in a way, our limited acceptance of ourself, our failure to mm-hmm. accept ourself has led to this crisis. Yeah. Um, what would you say as practical advice to people listening? And mm-hmm. again, maybe they have that niece yeah. who is and your your own sibling is yeah. allowing yeah. her to move forward, you know, barreling forward towards the du- the double mastectomy or you have a grandchild yeah. and the parents are saying this little your little grandson is now a girl or you know, you know someone at school or they come into your, you know, your place of work and they're struggling with gender dysphoria. What is the way that we can both lovingly but yeah. truthfully actually help other yeah. people and prevent all of the mass suffering that comes from rejecting one's actual body?
0: Yeah. Well, I think the first thing we need to do is listen to these young people. Instead of thinking, okay, what's the perfect argument that I could pull out to convince that kid that they're not trans? Cause like if they pull out, you know, the intersex brain argument, and I'm like, okay, well, hey, the, the the research that was done on those intersex brains, that was done on a very small population of people that actually took cross-sex hormones. And the research shows that cross-sex hormones can actually change the microstructure of your brain. And the scientists admitted that in the paper. Where's the kid at after it's like, okay, fine. You won the debate, but you haven't won me you know, what, I'm not looking for someone, if I'm struggling with gender dysphoria, I'm not looking for someone with all the answers. What I'm looking for is someone who's going to just walk with me to try to find them together. And it's not going to be Mr. Know-it-all. And I just have all the right best arguments. And so when I meet a young person wrestling with this, I think of one boy I met in Texas and. He said, you know, I'm trans and we just started talking. We talked for a good hour or so. And he's just started telling me about his family and he's got two older sisters, two younger sisters. And they, it's like, like they can do no wrong. My parents dote over them, love them. But me, I'm the black sheep of the family and I can't do anything right. And I got straight A's, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, do you think if you were born a girl then you would have been loved the way your sisters are loved? And he looked at me and he said, I know I would have been. And to me, it's like, okay, here we are. You know, his ache wasn't to be a woman. His ache was to be loved. But we need to help them listen to their own stories. So the, the phrase that I like to use is kind of listening to gender dysphoria with reverent curiosity, not for the sake of blindly obeying it wherever the culture tells us to follow. But there's a story there. I know a man I interviewed recently, an evangelical, focuses a lot on sex addiction recovery um, named Jay Stringer. And he does research where he studied about I think three to four thousand people of what their internet pornog- pornographic searches said about their childhood upbringings. And he researched that those who had a pattern of looking for these things Typically, we're missing this father figure. Or this, people who look for this typically had a very authoritarian father with a very shame-based approach to sexuality. Those looking to humiliate women, there was often this theme that tied into that one. And it's an amazing research showing these different templates. And, and, and his argument is that we're going about sex addiction recovery wrong, like that your unwanted behaviors are just the problem. And he said, I think it's the roadmap to that person's healing. And so I think we could take a very similar approach to this. And it's like, okay, what is this telling me? What is my dysphoria? dysphoria saying, you know, when is my dysphoria being triggered? When did it start? What was going on in my life? What do I feel when I'm dressing in the opposite way? And, And what is that tapping into? And it doesn't mean that if you get to the root of all this, the dysphoria just goes away. Usually it does. I mean, for kids... 80 to 95% of the time, the kids will desist of the gender dysphoria before they even finish puberty. If that's you like,
1: think they're properly understood, they go to talk therapy, they have understanding adults who really help them understand themselves, you're saying? They will desist? Just
0: on their own, as long as they're not getting imposed if on. If they're left like this alone, that's what you're saying. Yeah, as long as just leave them alone. alone. Wow about 90% of them will naturally come to identify with their biological sex if gender affirmative care doesn't intervene. That's telling the kids, well, if you don't feel at home in your own body, then, you know, like what's happening in Oregon now, the age of medical consent to get a double mastectomy is 15 years old without your parents' permission. Can't use a tanning salon. You know, can't get a tattoo until you're 20 in Portland, but you want to get your breasts removed 15 years of age. But if you just leave the kids alone, this is why we're seeing a U-turn in the Scandinavian countries, because they said, the clinician said, how do we know we're not creating this problem by offering the solution? How do we know we're not actually hurting these kids? And they said, we were haunted by that question because the research quality, the reason why they're doing a U-turn is the research was not there, that this was benefiting the kids. The suicide narrative that they're all killing themselves before they have a chance to get reassignment, the data wasn't there. The numbers were being cooked, just like with back alley abortions, very similar stuff going on here. And so you've got the very progressive culture saying... No, let's hit the brakes. It's America and Australia and Spain and Canada right now. It's got like the foot pedal to the metal, but it's like you've got the app on the phone showing us like a 52 car pileup up ahead with 30 casualties and you got black ice and you just hit it on cruise control. That's what we're headed to. But I think it's the the lawsuits from people like Chloe Cole and people like that, they're going to turn the tide.
1: And what would you say to that person whose family member, you know, the grandparent or the niece or the uncle or the aunt or the sibling mm-hmm. who has, you know, maybe they don't have the opportunity to talk directly to the child who yeah. is the victim of maybe gender dysphoria, or maybe there's other stuff going on, like you said, autism or other mental health issues or relationship issues with the parents. Is there a way, is there some tools that you would give to that family member who's engaging, let's say the, um, you know, the parent of that child. Yeah.
0: It can be very dicey. It is dicey. Because a lot of times if you try to put your nose in there, you could get the door slammed on it pretty hard. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to talk to you for the next 15 years because you're telling me how to parent. And so you want to walk in gently, uh, not doubting the love that that parent has for the child. Because if the parents are sold on this narrative that if I don't affirm my child's self-identified, you know, gender, they're going to kill themselves. And so I need to do everything I can. And and sometimes you'll be having split marriage problems where you've got one, who has custody of the kid who wants a transition the other one who doesn't the lawyers battling it out all in between and so these can be some very volatile issues so what i would recommend we have a website called chastity.com if you go to chastity.com slash gender that's where we house all the resources that i find from legal advocacy groups to parental groups uh detransitioner networks of people that are detransitioning because they're i mean what is that i think reddit net Reddit.com has a D10 transitioning form of like 48,000 people screaming from the rooftops to hit the brakes on this. And so all those groups are at chastity.com slash gender. There are some excellent parent resource groups out there. Tap into some of these things because they'll say, hey, that strategy does not work. Don't try to force them into a pink dress with a bow this Sunday. Like pick your battles, you know, and listen, this is going to be more of a marathon than a sprint. Ask some thoughtful questions. Well, can you give me an explanation of gender that doesn't refer to gender stereotypes? Like tell me, what do you mean by that word? Where did you hear this? This has got to be a conversation instead of some debate you're trying to win. One thing that I would recommend for schools and parishes, there's a website called personandidentity.com. So this is from the Ethics and Public Policy Center. This will be able to give schools and parishes policies and templates of policies they can put into effect in their school or church communities, because I mean, God bless our principals and priests, but like they didn't go to seminary or college to know what to do when you've got a non-binary seventh grader and they want this or they want that. And a lot of these leaders are scrambling for solutions. And so thankfully these things have already been thought through. Personandidentity.com is an excellent resource for those types of things. But again, all these websites I'd mentioned, just go to chastity.com slash gender, and then you can tap into those resources there.
1: So there's a lot of debate today, and part of this, I think, is creating the problem of transgenderism and the confusion, the gender, part of this is creating the gender confusion today, gender identity confusion. What is masculinity, what is femininity? I'd love to hear your take. You've been studying this and ministering on this for decades now. Define that for us. What is masculinity, what is femininity?
0: Well, I like to use those terms strictly in reference to how we act as biological male and females. And so if I'm a man and I'm changing a diaper, I can do that in a masculine way. If I'm doing the dishes, which I typically do for the house, I'm acting in a masculine way. And so it doesn't necessarily need to be confined by cultural stereotypes that if I'm doing the dishes, I'm acting in a feminine manner. To me, I don't think that that's a helpful way of looking at this. How am I living out my masculinity? Well, what do you mean? Well, look at a man's body. What does it reveal in distinction from a woman's body? Well, the the man is the initiator of life-giving love. It's stamped into his body. And so I think my call as a man is to initiate this gift of life-giving love, to use my strength to serve the family. And so I can do that in any number of ways, some of which might contradict, you know, gender stereotypes, but it doesn't matter because God created me. As a man, and what I need to do to build up my family can be an expression of masculinity, even if maybe 50 years ago it was seen as like an unthinkable thing. I mean, I've got some relatives that grew up 50 years ago that didn't, the man didn't change a diaper his entire marriage, not one. I didn't have to do a single, you know, but to me, in today's culture, at least, like to me, that's not a masculine thing because the masculine thing is to lay down my life for my bride. And if that means getting my hands dirty, literally, that's an expression of masculinity.
1: What about femininity?
0: Well, if you look at the, the woman's body, uh, you see active receptivity, not passivity. Uh, you know, that that's not, I think that's a that's a fault that some people can fall into, but there's an an active receptivity. I remember hearing one man who said that, that whatever you give to a woman, she'll make greater. He said, if you give her a sperm, she'll give you a baby. He said, like if you give her, you know, a, a home, if you give her a house, she'll give you a home. If you give her a grocery, she'll give you a meal, you give her a smile, you'll she'll give you her heart. She multiplies and Larges what is given to her. And that doesn't mean biological determinism of just like barefoot pregnant in the kitchen, that's your vocation. It's like, no, like as, as we'd spoken of earlier, that none that was a colonel in the United States army, that's an expression of the feminine genius. And so, but I think something you look at to the body to reveal the truth of the person. And one of the uniquenesses of the woman body is her tenderness and her capacity for eternal love to nurture. And that's not that these weaker than man, that's a strength in there, because I think, I mean, if men were the ones who had to bear children, I mean, there'd probably like be 15 people on Earth. You know, if we were the ones, so it's not that women lack strength, but it's exhibited in a different manner and in, in keeping with her feminine identity.
1: Okay, so shifting over to advice for yeah. men and women, mm-hmm. you've written your books, many books, but we, you mentioned earlier how to find your soulmate without losing your soul, and then the dating blueprint. Mm-hmm. What today there's, I hear this all the time. I get letters from people, you know, Lila, gtpmedia.com, sometimes Mm -hmm. um, emails. And I'm sure you get tons of this because you interact with young people all day when you give speeches. But there's a lot of first we'll start with the men. There's a lot of men who say that they can't find a good woman. Mm hmm. That they can't find, and on the internet, they're sort of in the red pill space. There's like, we can't find a traditional woman. Mm-hmm. There's no more traditional women, so there's yeah. a particular thing they're looking for. But in general, let's start with that: men who feel that they can't find a good woman, and then connected to that, we're going to go to men who don't want to get married. Yeah, they'll maybe date or they'll be in a relationship, but they won't marry. So yeah. starting with, what advice do you have for men who feel that they can't find a woman?
0: Well, the first thing is we've got to enter into that ache instead of just trying to disprove. Well, hey, maybe you're looking in the wrong place. You know, maybe your expectations are too high. Maybe it's like that must be really hard because I'll bet you probably really just want to have a wife and beautiful little family. And, and I can, I can understand the ache that you feel must be very frustrating at times. And sometimes you feel like you might want to just throw the towel in. I mean, you've got those guys, MGTOW as they call them, men that go their own way. It's like, I've been burned enough and I'm just going to do my own thing. And so they're just kind of like throwing in the towel on the pursuit of love. And so I think the first thing we need to do is affirm how hard that that probably is for that guy and, and validate the suffering that that is. And then enter into, okay, well, well, what are you doing to find the girls? Like, where are you looking? Are you on Tinder? Like, where are you trying to find these people? And no, no, I, I've got, I'm on the Christian dating apps and I'm on this one and I'm on that one and I tried this one. And like, okay, that's in the tech space. What are you doing in your real life? I remember when I first moved to San Diego, Right out of college like i didn't know anybody so i thought well, like how am i going to meet good people so i went to what i heard was like the young adult parish in pacific <laughs> beach and so i got there and i went to the first mass and they had announcements and they said okay this week social activities we got salsa dancing on thursday we've got a beach bonfire on friday and then i went to the leader i'm like hey do you guys have anything like religious you know like a bible study or rosary and they're like, no, why don't you do it? And I'm like, all right, okay. So next couple of weeks, I'm at the pulpit after mass. Hey, we got our first Bible study, you know, coming up this week. If You're you like, guys want to come It's a co-ed. <laughs> yeah, it's a co-ed. Well, what I did, I was like, Well, how am I to get the guys to show up to a Bible study? I <laughs> oh, wait, said, was this
1: for to meet a woman? It, it was co-ed. No, it was, it was a co-ed oh. one. Wait, was this when you were trying to meet a woman or you were already married at
0: this This point? was no, I'm single, just okay. fresh out of college, just want to meet people in general. People. Okay, gotcha. Just it. <laughs> in general, women would be nice too. And so I thought, how might I get people to show up? I said, I know to do. I'm going to do a four week Bible study on relationships. Then all the girls are going to show up. And once the guys hear the girls are there, then the guys are going to show up. Sure enough, it worked within a couple months. We had 70 people coming every week for a Bible study on this. And so it can be tempting to be like, there's nothing out there. Well, what are you doing to go create it? And so um, it's not that it's that simple, uh, but make sure you're not just looking on tech To find these women on the apps, learn how to talk to a woman face to face, you know, learn how to, you might be surprised how flattered a woman would be that you would actually ask her in broad daylight on a date, not let's hang out, whatever the heck that means, that you could stare her in the face, introduce yourself. Wow. I mean, even if you weren't that attracted to her to begin with, you just scored a lot of points by the fact that you at least have some guts to ask a girl out face to face. Because that not only makes you more attractive because it shows you're willing to take some risks, it makes her feel more attractive because she's not dumb. She knows you're facing the risk of rejection. But the very fact that you would risk public rejection just for a shot to take her on one single date makes her feel more valuable. And that's why I read one woman, she said, yeah, the easier it is to ask a lady out, the easier it is for the lady to say no. I never thought about that. I mean, how easy is it to say no when you're just swiping on an app? It's a little harder to say no when he's right, up in your face, asking with some manners and a little bit of confidence. I remember reading one girl and she said, yeah, if he asked me out over the text, even if I did want to go out with him, I'd probably say no, just because he asked me out over a text message. But if he asked me out face to face, I might just give it a shot because he was confident enough for the challenge.
1: Okay, so I'll play devil's advocate for just a second. Yep. If you don't have the ultra achiever, Ultra high achiever who's going to go start a Bible study (laughs) in order to you know find their spouse, which maybe that's not even that high of a high achieving. Maybe that is what you know. Go to the Bible study. Go to the Bible study. (laughs) But uh, you know, I have heard the complaint that you know men when they do ask women out, women are just not nice. That they are not very respectful. That they don't seem to value. You know. The chivalry that Mm. men have to offer, good men have to offer. And it is hard to find a woman of virtue and someone who is feminine, not feminine in the like hyper stereotypical sense, but who is appreciative and receptive to a man taking the lead.
0: Yeah, it is hard to find. I mean, we can't deny that because feminism has taken its toll. And in, in, the, in the negative sense, there's a, there's a positive, obvious aspect of feminism, but then what the negative that? sense of, yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, just authentic femininity from yeah. promoting that. But I mean, yeah. second wave feminism, third wave, I mean, it just becomes such a mess of like, I don't need a man to complicate my life and my, I'm And almost being and offended
1: I, that men would try to take the lead and, and yeah. you know, initiate a date or initiate opening the door or whatever it
0: mm-hmm. is. Yeah. You know, and so I would say, what is God calling you to do in your life? Go do it you know because you read St Paul he talks about the the married woman is anxious about her husband and how she can please him but the single woman is anxious about the things of the lord i think we get these backwards I think we're anxious about our future spouse before we get married, and then we get anxious about the world when we get married. It's the devil flip-flopping it. Now that I'm married, I want to go out and do all this stuff in the world. and like, whoa, 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 your holiness is your vocation, husband and a wife. But then likewise beforehand, am I anxious about the things of the Lord, or am I anxious about my life doesn't begin until I find a wife? Because I remember Curtis Martin once saying, don't always run after, is she the one, is that the one, is this the one? He said, look, run after God. With everything you have, run after God, and after a while of running, look and see who's keeping up with you. That's the kind of person you want. And so when I met Kristalina, it wasn't on dating app. I mean granted if I was really trying to find someone in public and I couldn't, I might look at some Christian dating apps, Catholic dating apps, things like that. But I I knew that God was calling me to do chastity ministry. And where did I meet her? At a chastity conference. It was almost like she was doing what God was telling her to do and I was doing what God was telling me to do and then we met each other. But Nonetheless, these years of singleness can really drag on in a very painful way for some people. And it's just like, God, if you're all powerful, then how come I'm not getting what I want? You know, and it's, God, it's not like I want something bad. I, if, if I wanted a kid my way, I could go meet a girl at the club and we could have a baby in nine months from tonight. But I want to be obedient to what you want, God. Like, where are you in this darkness? Where are you in the midst of this? And so I think sometimes God is taking us through a desert of purification, of suffering, that if you are going to become a husband or a father, you're going to have to give your kids the gift of faith. But how can you give that gift unless God has taken you through your own dark night? And this dark night might be dragging on longer than you had ever expected, but just... Meet him in that darkness of just knowing that he hasn't abandoned you, that he's actually joining himself to you in the sense of feeling, has the father even abandoned me? What did I do wrong, God, that I haven't found this beautiful one that I was always promised if I saved myself from marriage, that she'd come along and we'd have this white picket fence and and this dream never materialized. God, where are you in the midst of this? To me, Christ crucified is visiting you in a way that's gonna sanctify you right now, even though the suffering can be quite a taste of Calvary.
1: It's very beautiful. What is the role of mentorship in yeah. preparing as a man or seeking as a man marriage, yeah. preparing for or seeking marriage? Well,
0: men learn manhood from men. They don't get it so much from a book or a curriculum or whatever. And so you got to be a intentional about seeking out some good men in your day-to-day life, not just who are my YouTube influencers that I'm following. You know, am I, you know, following Matt Walsh and Jordan Peterson <laughs> and this guy, or am I affording Andrew Tate and not Joe Rogan or like, like, what direction am I going? I like, there's so many <laughs> masculine people like vying for my attention. Like, who am I going to follow? You know, forget that whole discussion just for right now. You need to have people in your real life. That you can talk to about what's going on and and the the impact of but just, they're not you know,
1: as flashy or as prevalent you know when you have your YouTube app open all day which is back to your point of yeah. get off the phone and go into real life mm-hmm. because a lot of the best men that I know living out masculinity living out fatherhood or being great single men are not on the yeah, internet they no they are not <laughs> they're not influencers they're not on Twitter all day and like I highly respect my husband for many reasons one of them is he deleted most of his social media apps I mean occasionally he's on Twitter to see what I say yeah. and to give me points. But he's, you know, he's not in that space. You know, he's very much aware of what's happening in the world, but he's not on apps all day. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, because what I've noticed is, is if you're around virtuous other men, what you tend to see are their virtues and your faults. But if you hang out with men who are not virtuous, you will see your virtues and their faults, and you don't make a lot of progress in the interior life. But I remember talking to a friend of mine, he's like, hey, you remember Matt from college? I'm like, I didn't know him well, but I know who you're talking about. He's like, yeah, I was talking to him the other day, and you know, he gets up at 4.30 every morning to do morning prayers. And he prays for two hours before his wife and kids wake up before wow. he starts his day. And for me, it was like, yeah, I get up a little early for morning prayer, but it ain't 4.30. And it was just like, am I taking my interior life seriously enough? And Matt has no idea I was impacted by that little conversation. But what he's doing in the hiddenness of his little chapel in his room or whatever, at 4.30 in the morning, was hitting me from the other side of the country. It's just the fruit of living a, a solid interior life. And so we got to be around those good guys and seek him out.
1: Okay. So women now, (laughs) Mm, um, advice for women, because on the flip side, you have women who, and I, I know many of these women and they're beautiful women. They're living lives of chastity. They're trying to seek the kingdom first and doing amazing work for God. And they're really struggling trying to find that man.
0: Yeah. It's a white martyrdom. It really is. And, and you've got to look at it throughout that heroic lens that you're saying, God, I know if I wanted what I want bad enough, I could go get it against your will. And what I want, as i mentioned with the guys, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> I'm not wanting to go clubbing and go do this and that. I just want a husband and I just want a little baby and I just want to raise a holy little family. And that's half of the cross is the mystery of it all, of just like, yeah, I know I'm I'm, I'm feeling all this hurt, but when's it gonna end? You know, is, is tomorrow the day? And what I would challenge that girl is just to don't lower your standards for the opportunity to hope you can fix a guy and rehabilitate a guy and change the guy. Only date or marry someone hoping they're gonna stay the way they are for good. Otherwise, you're dating your imagination. You're dating a project. It's almost like a home makeover TV show kind of thing where she's in full, you know, they fall in love with this kind of rundown property because they see the, the potential in it. And so women date like that, this missionary dating thing that if he was a house, he'd be like some dilapidated haunted <laughs> crack house in Detroit. <laughs> she's thinking, oh, well, but we could put a swimming pool out back. I'll get some curtains. In and it. you're and like,
1: where's the budget for this? Yeah, anyway, yeah it's blown.
0: Of... Yeah. you know. So don't date like that. You know, mm-hmm. so if you're content, just basically look, okay. Well,
1: if there's just dilapidated houses everywhere. What do you do? Right, yeah. but well, You're saying don't settle. Yeah, despite the, the, despite the ache, don't
0: settle. Yeah. Just look at the qualities you have. And if you're content with none of that changing 10 years from now, then it's probably a good marriage decision. But if you know you would not be content, if this stuff was still on the radar 10 years from now, Don't go down that road, hoping you can focus on the friendship and maybe he'll change over time, but don't enter into romantic relationships, hoping you can kind of rehabilitate a troubled guy. And so trying to keep those standards high as heaven, because what I say is, look, I know it's hard to be disappointed in some guys, but it's much better to be disappointed in some guys than to be disappointed in yourself for settling for a guy who's half the man that you deserve. Because there's one thing more lonely than waiting for marriage and it's being in the wrong marriage. Always wondering, what if I had held out a little bit longer? You know, how do I leave this now? It's such a lonely place to be. At least in singleness, there's, a, there's hope every day. Who knows who you're going to meet today? You never know. And so I would say, yeah, it's painful and God has given you a cross and it's truly a white martyrdom. And I don't know what the future holds, but when that pain comes up, just keep repeating, Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Because we don't even know we're promised tomorrow. We don't, I don't know that I, I'm going to get home safe tonight to the family. Like, I don't know how many hours we have, but all I know is that we should arrange our lives in such a way that everything glorifies God.
1: It's so good. It's so needed to have that yeah. realization that yes, we're not promised tomorrow. We're not even promised marriage. You know, marriage mm-hmm. is not a, a right, the right to marry. Yes. Meaning you can choose to marry, but if there's not someone to marry, you haven't found that person. Yeah you might not get that experience, but God has a plan despite all of that, God has
0: a plan. And we need to be careful. There's only, we got seven sacraments, but you can only worship one, the blessed sacrament. Can't worship any of the others, can't even worship marriage. And if you do, and it becomes an idol, it robs us of our peace because until I have that, I'm not gonna be truly happy. But if that becomes the source of your happiness, then once you have that, you won't even be happy because no human can fill that need ultimately.
1: And it can be an idol even once you're married because if Mm -hmm. you put all this expectation on your spouse and you have this level of demand of what you want your spouse to be in your marriage, once you're married, Mm -hmm. you can find yourself unhappy because you're wanting to get from your spouse what you should be getting from God.
0: Yeah, and that's why marriage is a painful purification process for everybody. It's part of the whole point a marriage is the sanctification of the spouses. You know, it's like the sandpaper of sanctity that God is bringing up your faults to the surface, like oil and water. Because before you get married, you're like, I'm a pretty good person. Then you get married, you're like, I'm a jerk. You know, that happened to me
1: hundred percent. I was like, wow, I I didn't ever feel like I was an impatient person until I got married. I'm like, wow, I can get impatient. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And some people are like, well, we don't want to have kids for the first five years because we really want to get to know each other better. I'm like, oh, have kids. You get to know each other real good. You know, just don't be afraid of that.
1: But it's also so beautiful and, mm-hmm. and the most amazing ride of all rides. Oh yeah. So you met, you said something that I thought was important. And I'm sure some people listening are in this situation. You use the term in the wrong marriage. Mm-hmm. And I'd like you to hear, you know, hear more of your thoughts on that, because there are some people listening who maybe know people and maybe they themselves are married and they're thinking I'm in the wrong marriage. Yeah. What does, what do you think that means? Um, is it possible to be in the wrong marriage? Um, you know, obviously the Catholic church, your Catholic says no divorce. Mm -hmm. Are there any justifications for separation? Because part of the breakdown in male, female relationships today is very much connected to the increase of divorce. Mm -hmm. And some people say, well, we just need to remove no-fault divorce, and that's the Mm -hmm. solution to that. But what's what's your take on all of that?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people enter into marriage with this overly romantic ideal of like, this person is the one, and I'll never meet anybody like this. And then what happens like 15 years into marriage, I mean, the odds of you finding someone else at some point during the course of your marriage that's probably going to fulfill you more emotionally or physically than your spouse is probably like 90 plus percent. That somebody else is going to come along that could make you feel more emotionally fulfilled or whatever. But if we realize that the purpose of marriage isn't your personal happiness, like the person purpose of marriage is holiness. Now that doesn't mean that God's calling us to live miserable existence. So is it possible to be in the wrong marriage I think what's possible is to be in something that looks like a marriage, but is not that you could actually have an invalid marriage. And I unfortunately have known many people that have suffered through these things where they got married in the church and all these things that in a short amount of time, or sometimes a longer amount of time, stuff came up to the surface. Like, wow, I didn't realize all this stuff about my spouse on the day of our wedding. It's not that they had a valid marriage and then it became invalid 12 years later from some indiscretion. It was just, there were psychological issues perhaps at play that were preventing that person from making a full gift of themselves to you, or they're hiding information, or there is coercion. So there's things that could invalidate a marriage from the start. And so that's where the church would consider an annulment could be had in that case, because it's not erasing a marriage. It's a declaration of nullity, that there never was one to begin with. You went into the church as two single people, and you left that wedding mass as two single people. And so externally, it looked like a wedding, but in reality, there was no spousal gift of self. Now, that having been said, what if there was a valid sacramental marriage? And then things got pretty darn ugly as time went on. And there was psychological abuse, physical abuse. And obviously we'd never say, well, you need to just stick it out and stay in the physical abuse. Obviously you need to protect yourself. You protect the kids. But then what about emotional abuse? What about the protection there? If it's the husband being abused, if it's the wife being abused. I think one of the most important things here is not trying to figure this thing out on your own. You need to find a good counselor. You need to stay very connected to the people who love you. And maybe your parents are part of the problem. Or maybe they'd be great to go to for advice. And maybe your pastor would be super helpful. A good marital counselor, go on a retrovi retreat. Like there's, there's things at your disposal. Don't just get trapped in your own head in terms of ruminating over this abuse endlessly and just, well, I'm just gonna go to YouTube and try to find the answer, you know, looking up narcissistic personality abuse and this and that, like, like, like that could be helpful to an extent, but you need to talk to a human being. And so if you're really questioning the validity of your marriage, talk to your pastor talk to a good marriage counselor, talk to your family. And uh, if all a bunch of very good, well-respected minds around you are saying, yeah, there aren't a lot of cases where separation is justified, but this is probably one, then you may wanna to listen to that. Or as if everybody's like, no, marriage sometimes gets hard and there's seasons and you're in a really difficult season right now, but there could be light at the end of the world, at the, at the end of the road, um, just make sure you're getting a lot of outside input instead of, uh, in a lot of these relationships, people try to make you doubt your own reality. And so if you're in something like that, I'd encourage you, write down just a daily log of what's going on. Because you can argue with your memory, but you can't argue with your handwriting. And if it's like, wow, this is a pattern, That's been going on for years and years and years, it could indicate a lack of psychological maturity that kept them from making a gift themselves at the very beginning. But again, don't try to figure it out on yourself. Try to understand your way out of the situation. Go get help.
1: Any good further resources for people who are maybe in abusive contexts or who are otherwise wrestling with their marriages?
0: Um, Well, Retrovise is one. It's a retreat you could go on. Uh, I would also recommend the John Paul II Healing Center out in Tallahassee, Florida, Dr. Bob Schutz. He's got some- Love him. We're going to have him on the show, I think. He's awesome. He's a great guest brilliant man, prayerful man, uh, really helps with healing because marriages can heal too and they can be really messy and they can be redeemed. And obviously it takes two. And, and sometimes one partner might take a l- little bit longer than the other to come along, but you know, God's still in the business of miracles and you know, God hates divorce. Uh, it tells us that in the scriptures, but sometimes a civil divorce is necessary if the valid mirror, if the marriage is not valid from the start in order to move forward. And sometimes you never thought that divorce would be part of your story in your life. But, you know, it's like, wait a minute, how could God use me after divorce? Am I like some second class citizen in the church? And I'd always wanted this wonderful Catholic marriage. And it was just a train wreck. And like, let God write your story. Just trust him. You know, the, the Bible says his His word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Oh, I'm sorry, a lamp doesn't give you much light. It's not like a spotlight I can see a mile ahead, but you can see at your feet where the path goes. Just take today's step and he'll take care of tomorrow. Mm.
1: You said something earlier that I thought was um, really good, which is, you know, you may have a 90% chance if you get married 15 years later to find somebody that you feel that you click with or mm-hmm. you're attracted to suddenly. And so you think you're maybe more attracted or click with them more than your spouse at that time. Mm-hmm. And so, but that doesn't mean you didn't marry the right person. It just means that yes, we have attractions or mm-hmm. connections to all kinds of people, but we are still called to be faithful mm-hmm. to our vow, to the person we pledged ourselves to love. I think part of that too, would you say is how much we're investing in our marriage though? No, because it's easy when you meet someone new to have kind of maybe an experience of Sparks, but are we investing in creating space for the experience of Sparks with our spouse? Yeah. Has it become all toil with them and all chores and the household work as opposed to I'm going to date my spouse. I'm going to have leisure time with my spouse. I'm going to prioritize my spouse. What's your take on that and any advice for dating within marriage. Yeah,
0: I met one woman once. She said, Jason, I've been married for 30 years. She said, you know, last time my husband took me on a date, was the night he proposed to me 30 years ago and he's never taken me on another date since 30 years, not a single date. Has and, she tried to take him on one? I, 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 who knows at that point? But I know another guy has been married for 20 plus years mm-hmm. and he and his wife have never missed their weekly date night in two decades. Like even if the kids are sick in the living room and throwing up in buckets, they'll just like <laughs> drug them out with Benadryl and have a date in the kitchen at midnight. Like they're gonna have their date. But what I'd say is that like that guy's kids are gonna know how to date because their parents never forgot how to date. I think the reason is dating is such a mess nowadays is because most of our parents forgot how to date each other. And so now we kind of have this culture of single people who pretend like they're dating, then the dating people behave like they're married, and the married people seem to think they're single. Like everything so is just out of order. But to me, the real remedy isn't just fixing the teenagers, it's getting the husbands and wives to date again. And so yeah, if the grass is greener on the other side, maybe it's time to water your own grass. And so it's, it's like your relationship with God. I mean, when you're a teenager, you like run into him at some exciting retreat, but if you really want that interior life to deepen, you've got to carve out that time and you've got to be disciplined and your interior life. It's the same thing with romantic love. At first, it was all bubbly and intoxicating, but if you really want that thing to deepen, you gotta carve out the time, especially as you get more kids and commitments in life. It's like, no, dude, Friday, we got a date night, and you gotta initiate this thing and keep it going. And so I think that's predominantly the role of the man to initiate the relationship instead of thinking that, well, I've got her in the boat, you know, we're good to go. It's gotta, like, you look at the Bible, it says that a man shall leave his father and his mother, cleave to his wife and become one flesh. The word in Hebrew for cleave is hotly pursue. So he marries, then he hotly pursues the wife. Like that's a very different perception than hotly pursue her and then marry her. It's like, let the pursuit begin in marriage. And if the kids could see that, I think they'd have a lot more confidence in what marriage should be.
1: Well, and how many, I think how much division and misunderstanding and hurt would be healed if yeah. that passionate uh, you know, introduction that people often have when they're first falling in love that continued after marriage, mm-hmm. you know, they really worked on continuing that after yeah. marriage. Um, what would be your advice to women listening who, you know, want that in their marriage, or maybe they're not even married yet, but they want that. What, what would, what's some ways that a woman can prepare for either marriage or in a, in a marriage be, a you know, an inviting, encouraging yeah. person to help their husband be that pursuing
0: Well, one thing is to realize, you know, you've seen the, the five love languages things of like, well, maybe your love language is words of affection and praise, or maybe acts of service. Well, maybe his love language is physical affection and doing things together. And maybe that's not your thing though. Well, okay, but it is his thing. And so it's an act of love to do what, Hey, I don't like golfing, but if he wants me to sit in his golf cart and drive around and say, Hey, nice birdie, I'll do it. And it makes him feel loved. And so it's a really matter. And you can even take these five love languages, there's like online tests you can take as a date, just bring it, get your tablets out and then learn what the other person's love language is and do that for him. And so for him, you know, if she just seems like this endlessly grumpy, you know, woman who's just not interested, he's like, well, why would he, why would I want to pursue something like that? When she just seems disinterested in me, you got to break out of these cycles. And I think it's really important that young married couples understand it's going to get hard. I mean, marriage is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, and we've gone through some tough patches, and Crystal and I have gone to marriage counseling, and we don't hold back in telling people about that. Like, I, I don't find any shame in being like, oh, the, the how to find your soulmate couple went to marriage counseling. Like, oh, what a scandal for the church. It's like, no, own your junk. Like, and we got to deal with some stuff. We can't figure out how to get through this patch. We need a counselor to help us communicate and talk through this and learn how to even communicate with each other. Because if, if we as a church act like it's all sunshine and roses and lollipops and it's just living the theology of the body, it's like yeah, that element is there, but it's a tough road. Um, and if they know that going in, that the cross is a big part of marriage, then I think they're less likely to bail out when times get tough.
1: Well, and you tie that connection, you said earlier, social media in many ways is confusing people about their gendered identity Mm -hmm. and it's making them not like themselves or think, well, I can't be that kind of a woman or that kind of a man, so I'm going to just not be my own sex anymore. Similarly, I think a lot of people in marriage, you know, they compare themselves on social media to other people's presentations of their relationships, not even marriages, relationships. And it leads to a lot of unhappiness and it's like, again, get off the phone and no go kidding. and love that person yeah, as yep. best you can.
0: Because everything, everything that gets posted online is like the best moment. Well, here's us in our modern farmhouse, you know, Pinterest house and our beautiful kids that have an Instagram photo with the shop. You know, like, it, it just makes like, why isn't my life like that? you know, my kid's thrown up in the living room and my husband's, you know, coming home later than I want him to. Like, maybe I just picked the wrong person, but like, what if we just cut out the social media piece of it? And we connected to other young couples, like, wow, you guys are going through a tough patch too. Oh, we are too. Like you'd be so much more well-grounded if you just turned the dumb screen off. And it's not, not wrong to have these, these dreams and aspirations, but they get just so blown out of proportion, you know, with the social media.
1: Okay. We've just got a couple more minutes. You've got a flight to catch get back to your beautiful family. What, uh, final Mm -hmm. words of advice do you have for, I'm going to say, especially we talked about married folks, but especially Mm -hmm. singles, single young people who are wanting to maybe get married or they're just wanting to become the best they can be.
0: Yeah. I would say, you know, work on what is God asking of me? In fact, God, the father, if you read all the pages of the old Testament gives all these different commands and commandments, In the New Testament, God the Father only has one command in all of the pages of the New Testament. He only gives one command, and that's, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's the only thing the Father tells us to do is just listen to the son, which means I need to create more time for quiet in my life. I need to shut off the phone, the YouTube influencers, except for live action and chastity project, keep those coming in. Um, but and the like,
1: podcast. Yeah, exactly. Unless <laughs> it's
0: is Boring. Uh, turn off the noise a little bit and listen to the Father. Spend some time in prayer, Eucharistic adoration or wherever, listen to the Father. Because we could blab for an hour, two hours, 12 hours, but it wouldn't do them as much good as just hearing one word from the Father. From the sun. But that's why Mother Teresa said, you know, souls of, of great prayer are souls of silence. And when our, our our minds are so full, it's almost like taking a glass of water, spinning around, sitting it down. And that's like prayer when we're all busy and we sit down. The mind is spinning for so long because we haven't even created room for silence outside of prayer. So just slow things down, create some quiet, and the father is gonna speak to you. And and maybe it's gonna be a word of encouragement. And, and maybe it just feels like, wait, well, I just feel like I'm in this echo chamber. I talk to God and nothing comes back. Well, if that's what's going on, open the book of Psalms. One third of them are Psalms of desolation. I want you to pick one. So I think there's one like Psalm 88, I think is one where it's really like, you're having a gripe with confess with God. And you're like, why did you do this? And like, blah, blah, blah. like it, but why it's really- Why am single? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> right. And read it once from your heart to God. Then read it a second time with the words of Christ, because those were the words he spoke in the passion of his own suffering. And then read it one third time, your voice and him together to the father. And so meet him in this suffering, meet him in this uncertainty and just say, God, I don't know what you're asking of me, but there must be a reason you're having me carry this particular cross. And I offer this up. If you're calling me to marriage, I offer this up for my future wife, she's out there. If if you have a different path for me, God, help me to open my heart to whatever that might be. But in the meantime, help me to not be distracted so much by the future that I can't see how you're encountering me in today, in the people that need me, that in the people that might be a lot more lonely than I am, that I don't even bother to minister to, to because I'm too obsessed with my own issues. Help me to raise my, out of my navel, look around and think, you know What? That person sitting on the highway probably has it a little worse than I do today with his little cardboard sign. Maybe I could talk to him for five minutes. The devil just wants us to cave in on our own sufferings instead of allowing Christ to encounter us in them and then becoming Christ for the world.
1: Beautiful. Thank you, Jason. This is so awesome. How can people find you and how
0: can they buy your awesome books? Yeah, uh, you just go to chastity.com and at chastity.com they can see our podcast, which is Lust is Boring on <laughs> YouTube. It's youtube.com slash Jason Everett, twitter.com slash Jason Everett, instagram.com slash Jason Everett. Um, my wife is also on there. You can link our ministries called Women Made New where she really helps women to kind of face it, own it, and heal it and kind of dealing with your junk. And so that's kind of her whole ministry. And so Women Made New, chastity Project Lust is Boring. You can find it all at chastity.com.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. This is awesome.